most importantly, have fun because that really is what it's all about. And that hard work and dedication are going to pay off. At some level, it's going to pay off. And every, not everybody has money. Not everybody has fancy horses. And that's really not what it's about. But at the end of the day, if you know you've done all you can do that day to make you and your horse or your pony be the best it can be that day, then that's all you can do. And, you know, it's a dream. If it's a dream, you go for it. Because you only live once. And you just go for it. And most importantly, you have fun. Welcome to Practical Horseman's Podcast, a show featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show, which runs every other week, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Jocelyn Pierce, and this week's episode is with top hunter, rider, and trainer Sandy Farrell. Sandy began riding at the age of four and progressed through a stellar junior career competing in the pony, hunter-jumper, and equitation divisions. She later opened her own business, Royal Show Hunters, and both Sandy and her clients have won numerous championships at A-Circuit Horse Shows. She is a six-time regional professional winner of the World Champion Hunter-Rider Competition and the winner of the 2008 World Champion Hunter-Rider Hunter Spectacular. In 2018, she won the inaugural U.S. Hunter-Jumper Association 3'6 Green Hunter Incentive at the Kentucky Horse Show and the Green Hunter Grand Championship at the Pennsylvania National Horse Show. She splits her time between Bel Air, Maryland, and Wellington, Florida. I caught up with Sandy at her home in Maryland after she finished her day of teaching lessons. Even after her long day, Sandy was still bubbling with energy and enthusiasm, was quick to laugh, and made me feel right at home. But under that bright smile is a strong-willed, hard worker. Sandy has faced her fair share of hardships. She is a breast cancer survivor, and she broke her back in a riding accident. During our chat, Sandy discusses why she always wears a safety vest, why she describes herself as old school, and why correct equitation is so important. We actually did an article with Sandy in our summer issue entitled Hunter Riders, Equitation Counts, in which she explains why she thinks hunter riders need to take their position more seriously and shares exercises to address the most common flaws she sees. We go over some of the details here. But first, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, the Evolution Leather Bits Collection by Metalab. The Evolution Leather Cover Bits are a combination of modern technology and traditional workmanship. More than just a bit covered in leather, this collection utilizes an advanced pinchless joint system, an ergonomically designed mouthpiece resulting in a series of comfortable but responsive bits that allow the horse to relax and to more readily respond to the rider's aids. You can learn more about the Evolution Leather Bits Collection at www.partrade.com. That's www. Now let's jump right into the show as Sandy explains what it was about horses that attracted her to the sport as a child. My family was based upon farmers and my mom rode as a kid and I think every young girl has a dream of having a pony. So um, my dad was an auctioneer so at our business we had an auction every Wednesday and of course, there were ponies and horses that came through there. Unfortunately, most of them probably going to the killers. So my, I got a pony one day, and this little black pony named Cinder. And I think she probably threw me off every day I tried to ride her. But I think it was just in my genes to love animals and to want to be on a farm. And again, you had to follow my mom's footsteps just a little bit. Um, and that's really how it started. And it probably took me to be about 30 years old before my mom really realized I was doing this seriously. It's like, she really didn't think that was ever going to happen. <laughs> and she's like, really, you're going to do horse? I'm like, yep. I'm <laughs> so really, I think it was just, it was a little bit just in my blood when I was born to want to be around animals. And then how, how did your uh, riding progress? How did you become interested in hunters? I think when I was little, there probably wasn't really an option, you know, when you're little and I did the local horse shows and I borrowed ponies from friends of mine or family friends that maybe were a little advanced, more advanced than I was. And I just got the bug. And actually my I three older brothers and the youngest of my three brothers also had a little bug for riding. Now, after he was finished his junior career, he did not pursue it. 
but um, I just think I got I got the bug for it. And then of course we just you know you kind of just keep going. You take the next step and the next step and the next step. And like I said, it we had a great time doing it as a family. Um, again, I think my mom is still surprised that I did this for a career. <laughs> Um, but it just kind of came naturally and we went up through the ranks of, I don't know if I ever did lead line. I don't remember that. I certainly remember short stirrup and I remember my competitors back from back then still to this day, my competitors from short stirrup and you know, you, you do the local horse shows and eventually you just kind of keep evolving and find the person that's the next step higher and the next step higher. And so as I was kind of moving up the chain of, you know, better horse shows, et cetera, et cetera. My first trainer, real trainer was Timmy Keys. Um, I'm sure everyone, all of you out there know Timmy quite well. He was based in Maryland and I was best friends with his daughter. And he was really my first step into the A circuit. Um, and from then I went on to Beverly Salter, who I think all of us, if we don't know Beverly, you know her daughter, Elizabeth Salter, one of our best hunter riders ever. And then it just kind of went from there. And what other trainers or mentors influenced your riding career? Oh my goodness. So Timmy Keys um, was a big part of introducing me to the hunters. Um, and then after Beverly, oh gosh, let's see. I guess I went to Jack Steading and Linda Andrasani were part of my, probably my final six to seven years of my junior career. Um, and I got to do a lot of catch riding, um, and they introduced me to so many different people and they had such a, such a great business, you know, unfortunately we lost Jack a couple years ago and he was such a icon in this area in Maryland, which is, you know, where I was born and raised and spent all my years until after college. Um, but I was just, you know, Maryland is such horse country. And there's so many levels of riding and disciplines of riding. I was very blessed to be in an area that there was access to so many good people. And then you opened your own business, Royal Show Hunters. What kind of led you to that decision? What, what was that like? Um, you know, I after I graduated from college, I went to work for Louise Serio for many years. Um, and obviously she taught me the ropes and I got offered a job in Omaha, Nebraska for, <laughs> for a farm called Jubilee Farm owned by the Thesons, which was a great experience. And I went there solely as a rider. I was not the trainer. Um, it was just the rider. And then we would spend the winters in California, just like I spend the winters in Florida now. And then over time, the kids grew up and they kind of went a different direction. And I ended up staying in California for seven years. And I was with Carlton Brooks. And I just got to the point in time in my life where I just thought, you know what, I missed home, although I loved and I so cherished the experience of learning about the horse business in different parts of the country because I think unless you do that, you don't really know what it's about. You know, we think you know, East Coast is the predominant coast of hunter and jumper riders, and it's it's not. There's a really good people out there in different places. And I think we can all say for a fact that a lot of the West Coast sometimes comes to the East Coast and, you know, they're here to win, which is so I'm grateful to have experienced all those areas of the United States. Um, so anyway, it, you know, it was just a time in my life where I, you know, I just thought I would come back home and, you know, kind of get started again and needed a change. And um, unfortunately, the year I came home, um, my father passed away in a car accident. So I was so grateful that I had made that choice to come home. And his middle name is Royal, spelled with the two L's. So that's how I got Royal Show. Um, who are some of the most important or influential horses in your life? And what were they like? Oh my goodness. So if we go way back, I would say my junior career, I had a very lovely horse named Spruce Goose. And you know, things were a little bit different back then. And um, he actually, and I'm pretty sure it's correct to say that Jack showed him in the first year greens as a three-year-old, which I'm pretty sure would never happen <laughs> nowadays, but back then, I, um, it was at least, he was three or four and he was very successful. So I think as far as my junior careers, he was probably the most outstanding horse 
I ever had. I really, I did the amateurs a little bit, but not, I didn't really ride very much when I was in college. Um, and then, like I said, you know, when I went to work for Louise, you know, I, I had to work my way up the ladder. Um, when I was in Omaha, Nebraska, I had some very nice horses, Solar Kingdom, Shameless, After the Fire. Probably my horses that I think probably catapulted me a little bit started in California when I was with Carlton. Um, he had a very predominant business in Menlo Park and I had so many, many nice horses to ride. As far as when I started my own business, oh, goodness gracious. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think back to Showman, who was just amazing, Bolero, um, Espresso, like, and then if I step out of my own barn and I go to the people that I rode for as well, you know, um, predominantly Meadowview Farm out of the Hamptons, the Riggios. I mean, gosh, you talk... Indian Summer, Compliment, uh, Bright Lane, Hemingway. I mean, it's, the list just goes on and on. I mean, I just, I was, I was very blessed with amazing horses. Absolutely. My entire life. Do you have a routine before a competition? No, not really. You know, I don't, I don't have a big business anymore nowadays. I kind of decided to downscale and I'm more than, I'm mostly freelance now. Um, I travel a lot every day teaching. I really, really enjoy teaching. It's very important to me. Um, so, you know, my, my heavy hitters right now come from Meadowview Farm. And there's such an incredible team there. I mean, those horses are ready for me whenever I meet them. There's certain times I'll go up there and ride if I haven't seen them for a while. But no, I can't say. I mean, if there's a routine, it's just... I get up every day and I go teach and I ride and I love what I do and that's real. But there's no crazy things that I do. What is it that you love about teaching? I I'm for sure old school. I am learning that I'm definitely the older generation in my world right now. I was when I was commenting the Derby finals the other day, I thought to myself, I'm like, oh my goodness, like if I was riding tonight, I would be the oldest person in the class. So I think it's, you know, the world has changed over the years in so many ways. And I was brought up very old school and I still continue to teach old school. And I think that's very important because I think a lot of times when you're in the horse show world, it's more about showing. And yes, you can buy a horse that's ready to go and you can find a jump spray. I do honestly feel some of the horsemanship part of it and the traditions of old school horsemanship have disappeared. So, you know, if you were ever to interview any of my clients, they would tell you that I'm very old school and it's really truly about communicating with the horse and understanding what the both of you need together as a team. And it's not about winning. It's not about finding the perfect jumps. It's not about that. It's the communication. And for riders, it's really about body position and control. So that's really what I focus on all the time with my clients. And really, it's the behind the scenes. Your team behind the scenes is everything behind the winner. And when I grew up, we as the professionals or the trainers were still a part of that behind the scenes, things that took place. And I don't know if that can always happen nowadays. And so, you know, whether we muck stalls or drove the truck and trailer or whatever it is, we were very much a part of that. And I really think up and coming professionals, they they should experience that because it really does change your outlook on what you're doing. You know, one of my favorite times of the day would walk into the barn at night, let's say six o'clock when everything was quiet, they had to, and just listen to the horses crunch on the hay and walk by the stalls and see how they're standing. And that's how you learn so much about the behavior of the animals. So it's really a lot of the old school behind the scenes, forget the riding. Mm -hmm. That's the easy part. It's everything else that matters. I think that's a big part of why a lot of us get involved with horses sure. to begin with. Yes. Um, just kind of talking about teaching and talking about being old school <laughs> and working on riders with body, you know, working on their body positions. Yeah. Um, you recently did an article with us in our summer issue about the importance of correct yes. equitation and why position is so important. Um, can you explain just a little bit about why you think hunter riders need to take their position more seriously? Oh, for sure. Because I think the horses are very active to what we do, whether it's through our 
emotions, whether it's for, through our position, you know, they react to what we do. And the ideal of a hunter ride around the ring, like I always, you know, compare it to ballroom dancing or figure skating or whatever you want it to be, because it is a team. It's not about one person. And I think that our position, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, directly influences how a horse jumps a jump and how a horse goes around the ring. And, you know, really the idea is that we are to sit still and we're allowed, we have to allow them to jump the jumps. And I think so many people nowadays think they have to do something to make their horse jump the jump, whether you're novice riders, amateurs, riders, beginners, whatever it is. And so to me, and I've often talked to, I'm not a judge, a lot of judges about it, even before I did the article. And I think it's so important that we as riders don't do anything to distract from the horse because ultimately, although they're judging us as a team, they're judging the athletic ability of the horse. We are presenting the athletic ability of the horse. Mm -hmm. So if our bodies are doing things to compromise that, then that's going to be obvious and there's going to be, you know, points deducted or mistakes made, you know, or whatever. So like I said, you know, hunters are supposed to be beautiful to watch, flawless. And, you know, your best hunter riders, and I tell my clients this all the time, it's not about who can find eight jumps perfectly. It's who can ride between the eight jumps perfectly and make decisions and make corrections that nobody can see. We all get away with bad jumps, all of us in the professional world, but we've learned how to camouflage that. And that's what's so important. So it's not about people thinking they have to find eight perfect jumps. It's everything between the jumps mm. that they need to focus on and never take the judge's eyes off the horse by something we're doing with our bodies. And in the story, you kind of outlined some specific solutions to three of the most common equitation problems you see. Um, and the first problem you talked about was a weak leg. Um, can you talk a little bit about why having a strong leg is important and maybe how you would fix a weak leg? So our, le our lower leg is the base of our support. I think every trainer will agree to that. And I think what happens is, you know, if, if a rider's upper body tilts forward, then their leg has to go backward. You know, again, I said, if, let's say somebody rode behind the motion too much, their leg would go forward. So they're all connected. So again, you know, there should be a straight line from your kneecap to your tip of your toe. I mean, your leg is your base of your support and it just stays there. I think what happens to a lot of people as they're getting anxious, as maybe they're getting tired or whatever it is, you know, we start to tilt forward, tilt forward, tilt forward with our upper bodies. And guess what? Our leg has nowhere to go but back. And then it's no longer underneath of us. So it's, it's no longer controlling, you know, the, the communication with the horse starts with your leg to your hand to the mouth. And it's a, it's a chain of command that just keeps flowing. So if that chain of command beginning is in the bad place, which would be your leg being behind you, then that chain of command is now compromised. So then the hands start to do too much and we get in trouble, obviously. So, you know, I think first of all, people, I always teach my people not to think so much of heels down, but to think of really pushing the balls of their feet on the stirrup. Mm -hmm. That is where the point of pressure is on your stirrup. Your heel is going to go down automatically just, you know, as, as a, as a visual, it's going to go down, but the pressure of your foot should be on the ball of your foot, which is the part that's in the stirrup. And that's where we can gain a lot of strength and a lot of power. I think when people start to get nervous, you know, they kind of elevate their heels a little bit. The ball of the foot comes off the stirrup with as far as pressure, and then the lower leg goes behind them. But the bottom line, it is the ball. It is the lower base of support, and that's where the communication begins. So if that's not in the correct place, nothing else is going to be in the correct place. And you kind of mentioned this a little bit um, with the weak leg, then they start doing maybe too much with their right. arms and hands. Um, can you explain the way riders use their arms and hands improperly? Improperly, for sure. I think probably 98%, I feel like, riders out there, maybe not 98%, but we all ride with our hands too close together. I think when we're taught to ride, Hands together, thumbs up, heels down, boom, that's how it goes. And obviously over time you progress and you get more technical and everything. Um, I truly believe in having a little wider position on my hands um, because I feel like 
it kind of sets up some boundaries between me and the horse. Like, okay, I'm here, you're here. So and when I'm giving lessons to my clients, I said, look, put your hands as wide as you want to put them. And that way, the horse's shoulders are in between your hands and arms. Therefore, you have total control of them going left or right. So the only place they have to go is to go forward. And so I think, you know, we're going around a course. And I, when I do a lot of teaching, I say, look, we're not in the show ring right now. It's not about the show ring. This is about learning how to feel things and correct things. And I always say, like, you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to try something different. And I think teaching with the, the wider arms, it automatically makes us use our core muscles way more than we would normally, which is like a vital part of controlling what your upper body does. So the wider arms, and I don't know if I want to say like, you know, and I think a lot of the jumper riders do that a little bit. Um, it just, because I say to them, look, if your arms, there's no reason you can't go forward with your chest unless your arms go forward first. So if your arms are out and in front of you, they're basically controlling the speed at what your upper body is doing things. So I think what happens is everybody, reins get long, myself included. Um, the hands get low. The chest gets over the hands. And then you're in front of a jump or you need to make some sort of correction. And there's nowhere to go. Your arms have nowhere to go. If your arms are wider, they can go back. They can go out. They can go forward, whatever. Once they're pinched together, it's done. And then when we can't use our arms to do something, we automatically use our bodies to try to create something. And I think that's where a lot of people get in trouble. And one of the exercises you talked about as a solution to kind of learning to kind of keep your horse in, mm -hmm. a, in a box, keep, it, keep your hands a little wider mm -hmm. and, you know, keep the shoulders, you know, in that box was to hold a crop between your hands. Can you describe that a little bit? <laughs> Absolutely. I just introduced somebody today to that um, because what it does is I think you know we're habit is hands too close together reins too long you know we kind of and then our reins kind of unfortunately as we're going around a course get a little bit longer 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 so the idea of the crop is first of all if you take a stick and I'm going to say kind of a longer stick not a dressage whip a jumper stick or something just a little bit not the little fairy dusters mm -hmm. Um, again, so now all of a sudden your arms are wider than your chest, your arms are wider than their shoulders. So now you've set the perimeters of where that horse can move underneath of you. So, and then what it does is it then causes the rider to think more of you using more leg than so much hand, because now you have to ride them up through your hands to their mouth. And I taught a girl today and I said, do me a favor, just put the stick in your hand and she had never done that before. Nobody ever introduced that to her and the horse was having some, some issues. And you know, by the end of the end of the lesson and she rode well, she was a strong rider. She's like, wow, that was such an incredibly different feeling. I felt so totally in control because with holding the sticks, our arms couldn't go back to the bad habits. Now, granted, I've had some people snap a stick in half and I, and then when that happens, they look at me like, Oh my God, I cannot believe that just happened. I say, well, that's how strong you are. And that's how determined you are to jam your hands together to get things done. And, you know, horses are, their brains are very small. And, you know, it's very easy to um, kind of outsmart them a little bit. And the, the most important thing you do is put your hands in a different position and put the pressure on their mouth in a different position. And they mentally have to slow down and figure out where you are because... This particular girl, this horse, was a little bit spooky. So, of course, every time he raised his head, she raised her hands. I'm like, no, no don't raise them. Go out. Because he's, he's waiting for you to raise your hands, to react to him. And as soon as she put her arms out, he became a different horse. Because he didn't know that she was going to do that. So his brain had to slow down to figure out what she was doing differently. And that's a very important part of riding. You know, especially as professionals, we learn to do those things. But it's some, something so simple, but it's really, our arms are so important. You know, and when you're riding, your arms are really the only part of your body that are supposed to be able to have the ability to move around. I mean, yes, we move our eyes, but our legs are supposed to be still. Our upper bodies are just still. You know, and your arms are doing a lot of things because they are the center link of that communication from the leg to the hand to the mouth. So if they're in an improper place, the communication is compromised. And the last kind of major issue you discussed in the article was riders that jump ahead 
which I think is also a big issue that a lot of riders struggle with. Can you explain why jumping ahead is incorrect? Uh, yes. So I think we talked earlier about, so the idea of a, of a horse is the horse is to jump up to us. So we're cantering to a jump. We're sitting there, you know, you want your horse to crouch down. You want them to push them behind. And then we literally wait till they jump almost like their withers should come into our stomachs. And we only need to go forward as much as the horse's bascule is or as high as the jump is. So what happens again, going back to, judging or the hunters etc etc so anytime we throw our bodies forward before the horse has left the ground or too soon after it's left the ground it compromises the jump of the horse because we've either thrown them off balance or we're kind of throwing ourselves up the neck acting like the horse is jumping four foot and it's jumping two foot and again it, it first of all it takes away from the picture second of all it compromises the horse's balance and ability to jump a beautiful jump but again, that is very much a mental discipline. You know, our idea is, okay, we're going to jump. Let's go. But it's like, no, it's like, we're going to jump. Let's wait. And that's a hard thing because our brains take over riding. And I would always tell my clients, I'm like, look, don't you, in riding, it's very hard to stop your brain from taking over because riding is not common sense. Mm. You know, we think, okay, we want to jump. Let's throw our bodies up their neck and tell them to jump. Riding is, no, you ready to, let's wait till they jump. So it's a very hard technique same thing when you want a horse to go faster people tend to let go of the reins okay well you've lost your connection you've lost your impulsion from the hind end so they're not going to go faster you know whereas that would make sense to us so it's like no if you want more power and speed you take more feel and more leg you don't let go so you know have, you have to kind of turn your brain off for sure and obviously you're novice riders that's very hard to do nervous riders it's very hard to do um and that's a technique people, you know, have to, and again, not everybody's going to become a professional. And again, riding for sure, like any sport, you have to have instinct. You have to have feel. And not everybody has that God-given talent or instinct or feel. So, you know, I just try to word things differently to say like, look, you know, you this their one job is to jump those jumps beautifully. Stay out of the way. Because once you get in their way, you're compromising the jump. You're compromising the balance. And then let's say we have a deep, I mean, a long distance and you throw yourself off the neck and all the weight goes in their front and they can't leave the ground. So we get the pop chip. Mm -hmm. You get to a deep distance, you throw yourself off the, up the neck, they're too close to the jump. They can't get their legs out of the way. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's why and it, that on top of all that. And then again, you're distracting from the presentation of the horse. Mm -hmm. So riding is very much a mental discipline. And in reality, there's, while there's, Certain things we have to do nonstop. There's so many less things that we actually need to do. And you shared two exercises to kind of help with jumping ahead. Mm -hmm. And the first was um, a triple cavaletti. So three cavaletti placed three strides apart. Um, you know, why does this work and, and how would somebody ride it? So I like to do three jumps in a row and I always try to teach people or say to people, okay, which jump is the most important? And you know, most people think the first, very few say the middle, and other people say the last. And in reality, the middle is the most important because it's the out of a line and it's the into a line. And, you know, you can set a quiet three, you can set a forward free, three. So to me, it's learning, first of all, it, it um, becomes very apparent about whether or not your horse is broke on his flat work. Because the cavalry really isn't a jump. It's, you know, it's an elevated pull on the ground. Mm -hmm. So it's, okay, so if I need to move up, how quickly can I get my horse back? Or if I need to move up in the first three, how do I get my horse back? So that center jump kind of rears its ugly head at many times. And again, you know, jumping cavalettis or something small like that, any exercise that is involving lengthening, shortening, patience, collection, whatever, you know, it's never about releasing and letting go. It's about being very, very, very still in the saddle, always having some sort, some level of contact. And I think people get in trouble a little bit, like I talked about the canter, like everybody thinks when you jump, you just give away the contact. So an exercise like a three to a three or a four to a four, you know, you have three strides in between those jumps where you have to make some sort of decision or correction. If you choose to let go of the reins, jumping at the first jump, you're pretty much out of luck. And so to me, it's just a very disciplined exercise 
about, first of all, you know your horse, you know, and you don't, it's not about finding the distance. It's about saying to yourself, okay, I want to have a quiet distance here to make this work. So it's kind of taking yourself out of your comfort zone, not looking for the perfect jump, not giving the big release, but actually realizing you have to stay in control of what's happening underneath of you. And then you learn to subtly make those adjustments that you need. So it's like, if I did a short three to a forward three and I wanted somebody to do it, I'd say, look, this is how it rides. I don't want to see anything change. Figure out how to get to that second jump, you know, and how is that? Because ultimately you, if you're quiet, you know, people just kind of jump in quiet. Then they don't think about the second three. Then they get too deep to the middle jump. And then their horse, you know, people think you go fast. You're going to get the lines easier. That's not true because the faster you go, the faster the legs go up and down. The slower you go with impulsion, the more scope you have. So it's just a very good exercise about learning if your horse has your gear, gauging those gears, but realizing you don't need to throw your body. You can't throw your body forward and get it done. And it was very funny for me when I was like making those those videos for I was like, oh my goodness. I was like on the neck. I was trotting. I was cross catering. I was like, this is crazy. You know, it's hard for me to do that only because I've taught it for so many years, but yet I could totally see how somebody's brain could make them have those reactions. And so it was fun for me to do it. But that's basically what it about again is like there's nothing about your body doing anything that in that exercise except sitting still, keeping your contact, riding your track. And figuring it out. And you talked a little bit about how um, riding is really like a, a mental game, and you really have to think about it. Do you? Are there any mental strategies that you use when you're riding, or that you teach to students to help you? Not really. You know, later in my career as a rider, I um, I took up ballroom dancing. It was on my bucket list at the time of my life. I need to do some. I want to do something different. Oh, cool. and, so I took up ballroom dancing, and it became very apparent to me, um, you know, because there's very few sports where it's just the two of you. Dancing is one of them, riding is one of them. Um, whether other sports are either you're by yourself or you're with a team. And it was so funny because I immediately became the most horrible low adult dancer, like a low adult rider. I cried. I quit. I said, I can't do it. I was scared. I was out of my element. I was like, what am I doing to myself? But, you know, putting myself in a position where I was scared to death to do something so different. And I was going to go on this dance floor and I was going to like humiliate myself. And, and I did many times. But in the end, I'm so glad I did it because I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm a tough teacher, but I'm a stern teacher. And... I believe in people and I, can, I believe in my students that they can change. And it gave me such a different level of compassion for someone who was scared because I didn't know fear about riding. I didn't have a sense of fear. And so I'm like, when people would say to me, I'm scared, I'm scared. I'm like, well, what are you scared about? I mean, you're great. But then going and doing that ballroom dancing and exposing myself to failure, which I did, um, you know, it just totally kind of, turn some different light bulbs on. And I thought, okay, so now when someone tells me they're scared to death, I have now felt that. And I learned, you know, how to talk them through it a little bit better and use that dancing as a tool to help me understand people who were fearful. Because I think if you're very good at something and you've always been very good at something, it doesn't always make sense why everybody else isn't good at something. You know what I mean? You can say, oh, you've been riding for 30 years and you're still this. I mean, I can still dance 30 years from now, and I'm still going to be afraid of dancing. So it, I loved it as a tool, and I, I would totally recommend to anybody and that's an athlete to go do something that's totally out of your comfort zone. And it was just, it gave me confidence in so many different ways, but it just, it transformed my philosophy of teaching because I know now what it felt to be scared. Mm. Are you still dancing? Um, no, I'm not still dancing. You know, I unfortunately broke my back back in 2015, which ultimately caused me to stop dancing. But then my life just kind of went in a different direction and things were different. And I haven't, I have not gone back to it. I will because actually right before I broke my back, I bought the most beautiful gown. And it is 
so bedazzled and so many like sparkles and whatever. Uh, and I always say to myself, one day I will go back at least long enough to dance in that dress because it's just so stunning. Uh, but no, but it was, like I said, it was on my bucket list. I'm glad I did it. And I'm grateful for everything it brought into my life. So I'm trying to take up golf now and it's not going nearly as well. It's going to be my next question. If you, if you have any other any other hobbies that you're interested in besides riding. Oh my gosh. Uh, I've always loved golf. Yeah, so I feel like I love watching the big tournaments. And I played a little bit in college or something. I had some golf class. And, you know, my boyfriend's a very good golfer. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to get back into golf. And it was, I think it's like anything. You think how hard can it possibly be? And golf is brutal. Um, I have Zippo natural talent. I don't know how many balls I lose every day that I play, but I go to that driving range and I practice and I practice and I practice and I still love it. I guess, you know, for every great shot I hit, I hit probably 25 bad shots, but it's just that one shot that keeps you to like, it's that one blue ribbon that keeps you coming back. Right. Um, but that would probably be the next thing I'd like, I'd love to do the most. I just recently, a group of us went to Ireland on vacation for one of my clients. It was his 60th birthday, and I learned about hurling, which is a sport over in Ireland. I became addicted. I took a lesson while I was there. I, I had my friend had to live stream the hurling championships on this past Sunday because they were taking place. And I was like, this is crazy. You know, it's just, it's fun to learn about other sports. You know, it's just, it is. As a kid, when I was riding, like, I would never have done anything that might have risked my health or injuries, you know, for riding. And I thought, well, dancing isn't so bad. The heels are only like three inches high and chances are I'm not going to fall. And golf, I mean, playing like I play, you're not going to get hurt for sure because you don't do it correctly. So your back's not going to take a toll. So anyway, but I'm open for anything. Like I love doing fun things. I'm a little bit crazy. I'm off the wall and, you know, but yes, golf would be a and then switching gears a little bit, um, you're known to wear a safety vest every time you ride, um, and even in competition. Um, can you explain why? So it goes back to 2015 when I broke my back, and it was actually a dear friend and client of mine. After it happened, said to me, and I, you know, I had the best scenario of the situation. I did not have to have surgery. Obviously, there was no paralysis, nothing. I just had to wear this crazy fiberglass corset thing for a couple of months. But um, she said, you know, you're so important to all of us. And you ride all these horses that you don't know. Would you, would you just wear a safety vest? And I was like, sure. Yeah, why not? So whatever. I didn't really think twice about it. So she sent me a safety vest and I wore it and it was fine. And it was interesting because that, so that next year, so I was back riding in sometime in February at Capital Challenge I went to put on my vest and the zipper broke. And I was like, oh, okay, well, things will be fine. I mean, what, what, what's going to happen, right? You know, whatever. So sure enough, on that, that Sunday before the horse show started, I was carrying a horse around, stumbled, fell, fell on me, and I haven't had surgery on my hand. And I thought to myself, hmm, I'm pretty sure God is sending me a message right now, like, put your vest on. This is twice now. Put your vest on. And really, since that, since that time, I obviously got a new vest, and I were, you know, I won't get on a horse without it now. Um, I truly believe in it. Um, and you know, when I first started doing it, I think a lot of people were kind of like, you know, why are you doing that? Like, you're fine. And and it's not that I'm trying to prove a point to anybody. It's not about that. But now, it, for me, it's become such a thing where it's like. I don't feel safe without it. And maybe it's not going to save my life. It's a little bit like a seatbelt, but I'm doing all I can to protect myself. And we do fall off. And for sure, we're all getting older. Um, we don't bounce as hard as we used to when they're kids. And I remember that that next year, you know, I was champion at Devon and my best. And it was funny. I went to Upperville right after Devon and this woman was walking around with her little girl. And they stopped me and they said... She said, you know, my daughter rides and I really want to get her a safety vest, but do you think the judges are going to count off for that? And I said, well, I said, I just was at Devon last week. 
and I was champion on a horse wearing my safety vest, so I would I would pretty much say no. I said I think that would be silly for anyone to take off from a rider just trying to protect themselves. And I think that is a big thing in people's minds that it doesn't look good. It's not pretty. It's are the judges going to take off? Am I really going to fall off in the show ring? And it's very interesting because I have a sponsor, which is called Race Safe Safety Vest. And people constantly ask me for their numbers. And I give them the number. And I always say, did anybody call you? No, nobody called. And then there'll be people who are like, well, yeah, I'm going to get one to wear at home. But not in the show ring. And I thought, okay, well, that doesn't really make sense to me. Because, of course, you can fall at any point in time. So why, if you're going to wear one, just wear it all the time. And if you're not going to wear it, don't wear it. But to say you're going to wear it at home and not in the show ring, which to me tells me that people are a little bit concerned of what it looks like or what their peers are going to think or the pictures aren't going to be as pretty and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's amazing to me that we're not required to wear them um, because what we do is very dangerous. And I think everybody in the horse, hunters, jumpers, whatever, will agree the worst falls are not involving a jump. It's a horse stumbling. It's a horse spooking. A horse like me getting bucked off. You know, it doesn't involve jumps. So it's anything can happen. Um, so, you know, I just, when people ask, I just try to get my feelings about it. And like I said, I panicked the other day. So I, I have two vests now. I have my old vest and a newer vest. And my old vest now is like crying uncle. It's like, I can't be zipped up anymore. I can't anything. And I call my sponsor. I said, look, you need to send me another vest ASAP because... I have to know there's always going to be one that's working. I said, yes, my newer one is okay, but if the zipper breaks, and unfortunately with the, the way they're made, you can't replace the zipper because once the zipper goes, it's gone. And I said, I need to know I have another vest. And they were like, no problem. So it's, you know, again, to me, it's silly to something like you're going to wear sometimes, but not all the time. Yeah. If you're going to make the, you know, the commitment to safety, make the commitment to safety. And, you know, hopefully more people over time and, Sometimes it takes people, I'm not, okay, like me, so I had an injury, I got a vest, but now it's like people say like, well, you know, they're willing to risk the point of having an injury to starting to wear one, which is kind of silly because you could probably prevent that injury. And is it, is it, is it a little bit, di bit of a different feeling when you're riding? Sure, I'm very used to it now, and there are, you know, all different types of vests. Um, you know, the blow-up vests are probably more comfortable and less noticeable but I think you know you have to be very careful especially if you're you know jumping on and off horses back and forth and whatever you forget to unhook the thing the thing explodes you know it's there's a little more technology involved with those so I can kind of put my vest on and go um it was interesting I was last year in the incentive finals that I the 369 that I that I won last year on Hemingway there was this person it's not a horse person, so I don't need to mention her name, whatever, on Facebook, you know, criticized my style because they said, oh, she's so hunched over. And I, I took that a little bit personally, but then I realized it's, she probably doesn't realize I had a vest on. Mm -hmm. And would I like not to have the vest on because I think it looks better and my pictures would be prettier? I'm all about that. But at the end of the day... I now don't want to ever ride without it because I, the safety factor is more important to me. I lucked out when I broke my back, but that's only going to happen so many times. So. I think you're certainly setting a great example. And, you know, people didn't always used to wear helmets either. Correct. And now that's it's far more abnormal to see someone, you know, not wearing a helmet than wearing it. So for sure. Kudos to you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and things like breaking your back, um, how, how do you kind of overcome something difficult like that where you're not in the saddle or you can't ride and, you know, like a, a setback? How, how would you overcome that? Again, I had the best case scenario because I had to wear my fiberglass body cast, whatever it was. But basically the doctor said to me, you know, you can do anything you want to do except ride because of repercussion of the horses it was more the reverberation of my mm -hmm. spine anything you want to do as long as you can do it with your best on I worked out I did everything mm -hmm. in my little fiberglass corset because <laughs> I mean if I could do it with it on then I was free to do it like I get I had the best case scenario 
uh, that anybody could possibly have of breaking their back. Where I broke it, the ribs were up high, you know, my lung was punctured, but only 20%. Like, and it was, and I think the fact that I was able to keep moving so much that I healed way faster. I mean, they said eight weeks and on eight weeks, it was like, you're good to go. Um, so, you know, I did, again, I didn't have, the only thing I couldn't do in my life was ride. And, you know, I basically took those two months of experience of, wow, now I'm actually going to watch the horses I ride go. And I learned so much about them, you know, and then you, you go to your fellow professionals and you ask them for help and you become a different sort of a team. And like, they were literally there to help me. And I learned so much from them when they rode the horses and learned about what they thought about the horses. Um, you know, my clients were 100% dedicated to me. And I said, look, if, you know, I can't do this or somebody else needs to do it, they're like, whatever you think, you know, just take care of yourself. That's all we care about. So it was more of a personable journey than it was a professional journey. But like I said, I, I had it really well. So I'm, there, you know, there's people out there that have suffered way worse injuries. You know, they're, they're vet or they never ride again, you know, but it still puts it into perspective that anything can happen. And I got lucky. Um, and if you weren't a professional rider, what would you want to do instead? I always love this question. So <laughs> I'm a huge, huge, like criminal justice person. I majored in that in college and you know, my criminal minds is like a, so funny in my life. I either watch criminal minds or Hallmark and I can't tell you talk about two opposite spectrums of the, everything, right? It's like, okay, one is about love and romance and one is about serial killers, but I would definitely try to be on the BAU and work for the FBI and think about serial killers and, or do some like forensic pathology or something because it just, I'm always very interested in people's how people's brains work. You know, everybody has their own brain and everybody's brain works differently. And, and a weird way, you know, you think about a serial killer or something like that. I mean, they're so brilliant in an odd way of how they do what they do. It's terrible. And I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but they're brilliant. I mean, what they pull off is brilliant. And I think I would love to study those people and what got them to that stage and how their brains work. And, you know, if you're the pathologist, you're, you know, you're doing, you know, autopsies and stuff and you're studying parts of the, of the brain of a person and stuff like that. It totally intrigues me. So I, that's what I would be. And what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Most importantly, have fun. Because that really is what it's all about. And that hard work and dedication are going to pay off. At some level, it's going to pay off. And every, not everybody has money. Not everybody has fancy horses. And that's really not what it's about. But at the end of the day, if you know you've done all you can do that day to make you and your horse or your pony be the best it can be that day, then that's all you can do. And, you know, it's a dream if it's a dream. You go for it because you only live once and you just go for it. But most importantly, you have fun. And I think most people, all people pretty much admit I have fun all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would you say is your favorite part of the sport and maybe what, what's your least favorite part or the hardest part of the sport? Gosh, I don't, I don't really know if I think there's a hard part. Um, for me personally, I don't think there's a hard part. You know, I've been I've been very successful and very blessed. I think at our level, what becomes hard for like some of my customers and stuff is that, you know, they they don't have the endless money, and you know, to compete at this level, it requires a very special course. Um, so for them, that's why I try to keep it very, 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 very lighthearted. Um, the things I take away from this the most, um, again, I'm a little bit old school. So I think it's a lot of dedication. It's a lot of integrity. You know, it's Hollywood on horses. So I think reputation is very, very important. Um, and I think you, you have to make sure you're a very honest person in this business, um, that you work hard, and at the end of the day, we're, we're all friends and we're all here for the same reason. And, you know, it's, 
if somebody needs your help, you give them your help. You cheer each other on. You root for everybody else. And there's only one winner. And it's really out of our control. It has nothing to do with who we are or what horse we're riding. So that's up to the judges, you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, I would think that most important that I would hope I got out of this, and I think a lot of this goes back to my upbringing with the people I grew up with, Jack Steady and Linda, most importantly, and then Louise, because that, that huge majority of my life, is that integrity and hard work are irreplaceable. And just one last question. Um, why do you think you've been so successful? Oh gosh, I don't really know. But um, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I get, I, I, I guess I have to say I have some talent. <laughs> but um, you know, I think it's about you know being in the right place at the right time, and it's establishing relationships with people, and learning. I think growing up not having super fancy horses for a while and even into my professional career not always having the winners you know you have to be adaptable to all types of horses and all levels of riding and for me you know when I come off the road whether it's from a big horse show or whatever and I come home and I I teach my clients that have no money to go to horse shows and they have horses they've gotten for free and it's so um rewarding because all they do all they say to me at the end of the day is when can you come back mm -hmm. like they're so grateful that I consider them as important as anybody else in my life and that's why I say I'm so I so love teaching um but I think it's it's you know you want everybody to know you're doing your best but at the end of the day not everybody has those resources so as long as my job is to make every person know that I've did my best and make them feel as a rider that I am proud of them and they should be proud is very important to me. So maybe it's my crazy attitude. Maybe it's because I'm laughing all the time. Um, but I think it's, it's my dedication to the sport on many levels because I follow it on many levels. You know, I don't, like I said, I don't have a business that only does the A-horse shows. I have all these other people that I come home to that, make me feel like a good person and they appreciate everything I do just like the other people do at the horse shows mm -hmm. and I think that's really nice thanks so much for chatting sure. thanks so much for chatting with me <laughs> Sandy <laughs>